All right, we are continuing our study today in the subject of the covenants, and we are studying together uh, J.R. Williamson's book, From the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven, and we are looking at his introductory chapter. And last week, we began the study of this book. We um, looked at um, the uh, importance of the covenants. First of all, uh, we talked about why uh, they're so important and why they're so necessary, and um, we, we said that the reason why we need to study the covenants is because they are the central organizing principle of the Bible. The Bible is organized around the covenants. And everything the Bible teaches uh, is tied to and flows out of God's covenant relationships that he has with his people. The second reason we said why we needed to study the covenants is because They are the means through which God accomplishes his plan of salvation. And we said that when we studied um, uh, chapter 7 of our confession, which talked about the covenant of grace, that this so-called covenant of grace is really this single means of salvation that God has established. When Adam and Eve sinned, God set forth the plan of salvation. The salvation was going to be by grace, it was going to be through faith, and it was going to be uh, in Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. And so that same plan of salvation by grace through faith in Christ has been the single uh, plan of of redemption that God has provided for the human race from Adam and Eve to this point in time and, and clear to the time when Jesus returns. Well, how has this plan of salvation been worked out? Well, the answer is it's been worked out through divine covenants. So the covenants not only provide us with the organizing principle of the Bible, they're also the primary means through which and by which God has expressed, accomplished, and propagated his plan of redemption for the human race. So we really won't understand salvation if we don't understand the covenants. And we really won't understand the structure and the makeup of the Bible and its teachings if we don't understand the covenants. So um, they are very important for that reason. And then we talked about last time the definition of a covenant. And we said that a covenant was an oath-sworn promise. And oftentimes these oath-sworn promises are accompanied by either some sort of an animal sacrifice or some sort of of a covenantal meal, a ceremonial meal, or sometimes both. And uh, so we're going to be looking at that more as as we go along. But what we said is that a covenant is an oath-sworn promise. And we said that in these oath-sworn promises, God defines his relationships with his people. And we looked at a number of passages, Luke 1, 72 to 73, Psalm 89, 3 and 4. Psalm 89, 34 to 35, and Psalm 105, 8 to 10. And each of these declared that a covenant was an oath-sworn promise, whether it was the Abrahamic covenant, whether it was the Davidic covenant. And we're going to see that with all the covenants, as we go through them, we're going to be looking at the oath-sworn promise that attends each of them. Now today, we want to uh, begin on page 17 of our book, And uh, we're going to be looking at the description of the covenants. And we're going to be looking at the five major covenants between God and men. Now, it's important for us to understand 
that while men can initiate covenants with other men, and sometimes men even attempt to make a covenant with God, the biblical covenants are not of that nature. The biblical covenants that we're going to be studying are covenants that were initiated by God alone and defined by God alone. And oftentimes what you have in, in the making of covenants is the superior party dictating to the inferior party the terms and the nature of the covenant. And the inferior party simply accepts and embraces the terms of the covenant. He doesn't get to argue them or debate them or assist in defining them. And so each time God made a covenant in the Bible, God was the one who initiated the covenant. That is, he came and said, I'm going to make a covenant. And then he's the one who dictated the terms of that covenant. And so God swears then to keep these covenants that he initiates and defines. And he swears an oath to do so. And the oath that he swears is swearing upon his own life. And uh, oftentimes you see in the Bible people saying, God do so to me and more if I keep not the promise I made to you. And what they're saying is that if I don't keep this promise, God take my life. Well, this is what God does. God swears on his own life when he makes these oath sworn promises. You know, uh, we've heard people say, I swear on my mother's grave that I'm telling you the truth. Okay, or some equally ridiculous thing. Okay, in the Bible, they used to swear by the temple. They used to swear by the gold in the temple. They used to swear by the altar. They used to swear by the sacrifice on the altar. And um, all this swearing was supposed to be uh, accepted as, as, as weighty and valid and true based on the thing that was invoked to uh, reinforce it and support it. Now, what's interesting is that God forbids all swearing of any oaths on anything except himself. Now, oftentimes we hear people say in a very flippant way, a way that's a violation of the third commandment, not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. They'll say, I swear to God, blah, blah. Right? You've heard that in common conversation. Unsaved people use that all the time, even. And um, because they're using it flippantly and lightly and thoughtlessly, um, it's a sin for them to do that. But for us to say thoughtfully, reverently, and with full awareness of the weight and majesty and significance of the name we're evoking, I swear to God to... Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, like in a court of law. That's entirely appropriate. In fact, the Bible commands us to swear in the name of God. We are forbidden to swear in any other name or by any other thing. And so, uh, what we have God doing is swearing, and who does he swear by? <laughs> he swears by God. So let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> when we swear, which 
shouldn't be often, but on occasion there is a necessity of solemnizing a promise to the degree that it's necessary to swear in the name of God. Uh, We are to swear only in God's name. Well, God does the same thing. Now notice if you will Hebrews 6.13. It says, For when God made promise to Abraham, now notice he started with a promise, right? It says, Because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. That is, God said, in essence, I swear to God. Okay? And uh, because you can't, there's nothing higher than that. There's nothing more weighty. There's nothing uh, more um, uh, significant and valuable than God. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying... Surely, and here's a quote of Genesis 22:17, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. So the surely there is, is the swearing of the oath. And if you go back to Genesis 22:17, um, let me just read that to you for a moment. It's right after Abraham sacrificed uh, his, uh, his son. It says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gates of thy enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. So in verse 16, God says, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. Okay, So this is what the author of the book of Hebrews is referring to when he says in verse 13 that God swore by himself. So uh, Hebrews 6.13 is a reference to Genesis 22.16 where the actual swearing takes place. And then verse 14 is a quote of Genesis 22.17 where the promise is expressed. Now, here's a conclusion then. Verse 15 of Hebrews 6. For men verily swear by the greater. That is, they swear by something greater than themselves. And an oath for confirming what they have promised is the end of any question over whether they're going to keep their promise. A little interpretive reading there, but that's the idea. The end of all strife. Settles the matter, right? So in a court of law, when you go in and you swear to God, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That settles in everybody's mind in that courtroom that you are going to tell the truth and your word can be relied on. which is altogether different than the kind of discussion that most people would do in casual conversation where they would tell a lie or, or expand uh, the truth or reshape the truth or 
even flat-out flat contradict the truth. But in a courtroom, because you're under oath, you don't do that. And if you do do that, then you're guilty of perjury and you go to jail. You know, when you lie out in ordinary society, nobody throws you in jail for that because you haven't sworn to tell the truth. But in your court of law and you've sworn to tell the truth and you don't do it, you go to jail. It's very serious, okay? It's the end of all controversy over whether you're telling the truth or not when you swear. Now, obviously, we shouldn't have to go around swearing all the time that we're telling the truth. We ought to be truthful people as Christians. But I'll tell you, lying is rampant in our culture and society and is thought nothing of. And that's why it's so difficult to trust the words of non-Christians because they just lie all the time. And we need to be people who are scrupulous about telling the truth so that people know they can trust our word as much as if we had sworn an oath. Because even when God doesn't swear an oath, does he tell the truth? He always does, doesn't he? Never lies. God can't lie. And that should be our situation too. All right. So he says, verse 16, For men verily swear by something greater than themselves, And when they swear an oath to confirm what they said, it's the end of all controversy as to whether they're telling the truth or not. It's the idea that's in verse 16. I paraphrased it. Verse 17. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's us, we inherit the promises, the immutability of that promise, confirmed that promise with an oath. Once again, I'm paraphrasing, all right? To bring out the meaning. Verse 18, that by two immutable things. Now, the first thing that's immutable is the promise. When God makes a promise, he keeps his word because he doesn't lie, right? And then on top of that, he swears an oath, and that's immutable too. So the two immutable things are the promise and the oath. Okay, Verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, he can't lie when he makes ordinary promises, and then he can't lie when he swears an oath. Why does God give this double reassurance of immutability? Here's why. That we might have a strong consolation, a strong assurance who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope that is set before us. Now, here you are, you're a Christian, and you've laid hold on Jesus Christ as your hope for forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, deliverance from hell, and entrance into heaven. Now, are you sure you're not on a fool's errand when you do that? You're sure. Why are you sure? You have a strong assurance that you're not on a fool's errand. You have a strong assurance that, in fact, by trusting in Jesus, you will be forgiven of your sins, you will be delivered from hell, and you will be brought into heaven, reconciled with God. Because, number one, God promised that if you would believe in his Son, that he would forgive you and be reconciled to you. And number two, he swore an oath that that would be the case. Now, if you can't rely on that, people, you can't rely on anything in this universe. 
And so we have the assurance that we're not on a fool's errand, that God isn't, you know, playing games on us and telling us something that isn't true. He's not telling us a fairy tale. He's not telling us a fable. He's not telling us some modern um, deception. He's absolutely telling us the truth. And so this hope, verse 19, we have as an anchor of the soul. And what kind of an anchor is it? Sure and steadfast. Now, I have uh, a boat or two, and uh, several in the congregation do, and we have anchors, right? And you throw the anchor out, and, and it's supposed to hook on the bottom, and even if the waves go and the winds go, the boat stays still. Well, we all know that anchors from time to time will drag, and, uh, or the anchor rope will break, or whatever, and the boat goes adrift. Well, guess what? Um, the anchor we have of assurance is sure and steadfast, and the surety and the steadfastness of it is based upon the two immutable things, the promise and the oath. Okay, and it enters into within the veil wherein the forerunner for us is entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's a reference to the fact that um, this hope uh, goes inside the veil of the temple into the Holy of Holies. It's rooted in the very person and character of God himself. And Jesus has gone ahead. He's, he's uh, opened the way. He's provided the assurance. He's communicated the covenant. And uh, so, therefore, we have confidence. So, <clears throat> what we see here is God initiating this covenant with Abraham and we see God swearing an oath that he would keep that covenant. And that Abrahamic covenant is the whole ground of our hope that we're going to be accepted with God and reconciled with God. Because as we will see, the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation of the new covenant. And the new covenant is the, is the fulfillment of uh, the promises contained in the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant still in force, and uh, so our confidence rests in it. Uh, not in it alone, certainly in the new covenant as well, but um, it hasn't been abrogated. So the point is, all of God's words are sure and certain, but on certain occasions, with certain of his promises, God swears an oath of confirmation, not because that makes it any more true for him, but because it gives greater assurance to us. It's a condescension to us is what it is. And, um, you know, sometimes a parent will say to a kid, well, you know, on Saturday we're going to go to the park. And the kid will say, cross your heart and hope to die? Why do they say that? Because they want to bind the parent to that not just being a promise if it works out, but it's a promise no matter what happens, right? Now, your kid shouldn't have to say that to you. <laughs> and for one thing, it's not a proper way to swear either, is it? You know, if the child is biblically informed, they would say, do you swear to God that you will <laughs> go to the park, not cross your heart and hope to die? Um, and uh, that would be a, an appropriate inquiry. Uh, but uh, if the child knows you're a person of the word, he doesn't require an oath. You know, it's not like we went to God and we said, well, God, you know, you have this covenant here, but do you swear? God volunteered the swearing. All right. Now, 
what we have then in the Bible are five covenants. You'll notice they're all listed on the bottom of the page uh, 17. And the five covenants that are explicitly called covenants in the scripture that God initiated in his relationships with men are the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the old covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Those are the five big covenants in the Bible. Covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with David, the old covenant, and the new covenant. All right? So uh, why are these covenants necessary? Well, they're necessary because people failed to keep God's commandment in the garden, and they are necessary because they are the unfolding of God's promise of redemption declared in the garden. So because mankind failed in the garden, uh, the covenants were necessary to define God's relationship with man, and they were necessary in the carrying out of the plan of redemption. All right, so hopefully now we know what a covenant is. A covenant is an oath sworn promise by God to his people that defines his relationship with them. All right, well, that leads us into the marks of the covenant on page 18. And um, he talks about the fact that each covenant has unique features, and that's true. No two covenants are identical. In fact, every covenant is significantly different from the others in terms of the parties and in, in terms of the, the uh, uh, terms that they contain. But there are some things that are common to all of them. And he lists, I believe, five of them here. Uh, first of all, he says, all the covenants are distinctly sovereign. Now, we've already talked about this, but uh, each of them are initiated by God rather than men. And the terms of the covenant are not worked out between God and men, but rather they're declared by God alone. So God sovereignly dictates covenants. We don't get to have any input as to what they are uh, who they involve, or what the terms of them are. Second thing, all the covenants are relational. You've heard me say time and again, covenants define relationships, right? And so all the covenants uh, deal with um, uh, how God is going to relate to his people during this period uh, that this covenant is in force and in terms of, of the uh, language of the covenant itself. So covenants define relationships. They say, he says here they are relationship-forming epics representing a new phase in God's dealings with the people involved. The third thing he says about the covenants is that they're all gracious in nature. That is, every one of these covenants conveys tremendous blessings from God to people. None of these covenants are harsh. None of them are oppressive. None of them are mean or cruel. You know, oftentimes when a king came in and conquered a people, he would impose on them uh, terms of how he was going to relate to them. And um, usually the king would say, okay, you know, 20% or 30% of everything you make goes to me. Um, and he would say to them, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that. I remember there's one story in the Old, Old Testament about uh, the king who came uh, to a group of people and said, uh, uh, you know, 
And they said, well, make terms of peace with us. He said, yeah, every one of you put out your right eyes. We'll put out every one of your, your right eyes, and then, you know, we won't kill you. Wonderful terms of peace, right? Um, you remember the story, right? Okay. And, and so uh, then um, um, one of the judges was called up and saved them. I think it was Barak, wasn't it? Was it Barak? No. Yeah, I think it was. In any event... Uh, the bottom line is, is that um, uh, the covenants were gracious in nature. Now, the fact that God dictates the covenants, if he were mean and cruel, uh, covenants would be bad news. But the good news is, is that God is not mean and cruel. And when God speaks to men and makes a covenant with them, the dominant theme of those covenants is grace. And each time a new covenant is revealed in the scripture, it's a further unfolding of God's great design to do good to his people. What did the angels announce when Jesus was born? Peace on earth and good will towards men. And every one of the covenants is an expression of God's good will towards men. So these are like really wonderful things even though they're dictated by God, even though they're sovereign, and he, he determines all the terms, the terms are always gracious. The fourth thing that's said is all the covenants contain promises. The promises are the heart of each covenant. Um, the covenants, if you will, have two hearts, the oath-sworn promise, right? The swearing of the oath and the promise, these are the two things that are the essence, the right and the left leg, if you will, of each covenant. And if you take off one of the legs, falls over, right? Um, so we have the swearing the oath and we have the promise. So every covenant contains promises from God. The fifth thing he says about covenants is that they're all sealed with an oath. And so covenants include a time of swearing or pledging to the certainty of what has been promised. And that often involves a sign, a ceremonial meal, or both as a means of confirming and memorializing the oath that has been taken. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 31. The book of Genesis, the 31st chapter. Now, this is just an oath between two people, but it contains all the elements that um, covenants between God and men uh, contain. Genesis 31, beginning at verse 44. Now, this is the covenant between Laban and Jacob. You remember Jacob worked for Laban 14 years for um, his two wives and, and some more for some flocks. And then finally, he gets fed up with Laban and decides to go back to his own country. And Laban catches up with him and says, why have you stolen my daughters and all my sheep? And Jacob says, look, I worked for those daughters and I worked for that sheep. Uh, don't mess with me. And uh, Laban said, well, let's make a covenant. You won't attack me, I won't attack you. All right? So this is a covenant of peace between Jacob and Laban. Now, <clears throat> notice it says, verse 44, Laban is speaking here. Now therefore come thou, and let us make a covenant, I and thou, and let it be for a witness between me and thee. And Jacob took a stone and set it up for a pillar. What's that? Well, that's a sign of the covenant. And Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap. And they did eat there on the heap. 
So they had a sign and they had a sacrificial meal, right? They had a ceremonial meal is what I meant to say. So they had a heap of stones. That was the sign of the covenant. And then they had a ceremonial meal to seal the covenant. And uh, verse 47, and Laban called it Jigar Saha Dutha, but Jacob called it uh, Gelid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between me and thee this day. Therefore was the name of it called uh, Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. If thou shalt afflict my daughters, or if thou shalt take other wives beside my daughters, no man is with us. See, God is witness betwixt me and thee. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold this pillar which I have cast betwixt me and thee. This heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to thee, and thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm. The God of Abram, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob, here it is, swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now what was the fear of Isaac? God. He swore by God. The fear of Isaac is one of the names of God. Alright? So it says, um, and Jacob swore by God. Verse 54, then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat bread. And they did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. Early in the morning, Laban rose up, kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Laban departed and returned to his place. So what you have here is you have the ceremonial meal, you have the sacrifice, and you have the sign. All of those things there to seal the covenant. And you have the swearing of the oath. Now, this is just between two guys doesn't uh, bind God. Uh, They're just calling God to witness to what they're doing and to hold them accountable if they violate. And uh, that's what you do in a marriage covenant. You swear certain things to your wife. She swears certain things to you. Both of you call upon God and the congregation to witness to this uh, oath sworn promise of matrimony and the terms that it contains and to hold you all accountable to that. And... um, That's what sanctifies marriage. And the difference between two people living together in sin and two people living together in holiness and righteousness is the presence or the absence of a marriage covenant. You know, people say, well, if we we sleep together, we're married. Wrong. Um, Sexual intercourse does not produce marriage. Covenants produce marriage. Okay? No covenant, no marriage. Doesn't matter if you've lived together for 20 years. There's not the swearing of a covenant, then, then uh, it's still a relationship of fornication. All right, so these then are the characteristics of the covenant. Now, I want to just take these five things and I want to summarize them into a sentence. What is a covenant? Notice the five elements. A covenant is a sovereign, gracious, oath-sworn, promise that defines relationships. So I just took those five elements and put them into a sentence. 
A covenant is a sovereign, gracious, oath-sworn promise that defines relationships. So we know what a covenant is. And let me tell you something, people. That definition is crucial to success from this point forward. Because what you'll find in covenant theology is, is, is a lot of confusion. And the reason why you find a lot of confusion in covenant theology in the writing of the systematic theologians and whatnot is because they didn't do what we just did. They didn't properly define a covenant. And if you don't get the definition of a covenant right, you start calling things covenants that aren't. And you fail to see things as covenants, which are. And the reason why we have paedo-baptist theology, that is, Presbyterians baptizing babies and saying that they're members of the covenant community, is because they're functioning on this false construct of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Now, those two covenants don't exist. There is no covenant of works and there is no covenant of grace. Now, it's true that there is a method of salvation that's by grace and that's based on the works of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But don't call that a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And the whole covenant of works and covenant of grace construct has really thrown a ton of confusion into this. And as a result, people think the new covenant is the covenant of grace and the old covenant is the covenant of works. And it, it just becomes an absolute mess. And so what we've got to do is we've got to just focus on what the Bible says are covenants. And we've got to define covenants the way the Bible defines them and throw out theological constructs. And then we have a, a safe path to go forward in. All right. And while our confession itself does talk about the covenant of grace, um, it uh, is an error to do so. We have said that. We've put a qualifying statement in our Constitution declaring that to be the case and recognizing that what Chapter 7 of our confession talks about is a true concept. That is, there is a single method of salvation from beginning to end but it says the terminology that's used to describe that is fallacious. Let's use another term to describe it to avoid confusion. It's just like if you call a, a cat a dog, you're going to confuse people. Call a cat a cat. Call a dog a dog. Don't call a cat a dog. It just introduces confusion. All right, so... Um, I guess we're going to stop there because we're out of time. Next time we'll talk about uh, the importance of the covenants. And um, so we'll finish up this chapter and we'll move into the next chapter, God willing, chapter 2 next time. So for next week, be sure to read chapter 2. And uh, I would urge you to go back and reread chapter 1. And uh, hopefully um, it will help cement that stuff into your mind. So our memory verse today, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs a promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed by an oath. So what's the purpose of the oath sworn promise? It is to provide assurance to the heirs of promise 
that what God says is what God means and what he's promised he's going to do. And so God is very condescending and gracious to us to swear oaths uh, as though there might be some question about his character in telling the truth. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wonder of your covenants and the blessing that they are and the blessings that they convey. Thank you, Father, that they're gracious. Thank you that you sovereignly initiated them. For, Father, if you did not, we would have no hope of salvation. And thank you, Father, that you've made them sure and certain to us in the swearing of an oath. Father, we pray that we would understand our relationship with you, not based on what other people say or even how we feel, but that we would understand our relationship with you based on what you have declared it to be in your covenants. Father, that wonder of of the grace of those covenants um, makes it hard for us to understand just how safe and secure and accepted and loved we are. Uh, So, Lord, help us to fully enter into and completely understand um, the blessings that are wrapped up in these wonderful, O-sworn promises. In Jesus' name.